Hi everyone, I'm Matt Blair, and this is the Conservation Storytelling Podcast. Welcome to the shared platform where we have conversations with a diverse range of field-based voices and talk conservation. Join us as we share ideas, create awareness, and fulfill curiosity about conservation in Africa. Hi everyone and welcome to the community as we wrap up this first series of COVID-19 and conservation. The COVID-19 and conservation series, we explored the effects of COVID-19 on the world of conservation in Africa. The paradigm of conservation is changing. Conservation donor funding is being redirected and tourism-based income has been drastically reduced. Yet the project level priorities on the ground still remain the same as do the costs for most of these conservation projects. How do we protect and conserve our wildlife and our wild places? How do we ensure the communities who live on the periphery of wildlife areas who rely on donor funding and tourism for livelihoods are supported? The last five episodes, I've had conversations with project leaders from Zambia, Zimbabwe and Malawi who have addressed all of these topics. This episode is a summary of each of those conversations And in my first episode with Ed Sayer and Claire Lewis, we explore the impact that COVID-19 had on their project up in the North Luangwa Conservation Program as they were primarily donor funded. We've been able to be very flexible. We've been able to be dynamic. We've been able to react and respond very quickly. We've never been faced with this before, as have nowhere else in the world. And despite none of it being our fields of expertise. There's enough information out there and there's enough um, know-how within the organisation that we've pulled this together really quickly. And I think that's real testament to, again, the sort of the strength and the trust and goodwill and the relationships that we have. If everything had to be stripped away and you could stick to just one, it would be trying to maintain the security and the integrity of the National Park, which essentially comes down to logistics and enforcement anti-poaching effectively um, and as a national park with the big five so we have black rhinos which is essentially the sort of cherry on the cake um, you really do have to keep that going at, at kind of all costs and to be to all intents and purposes wildlife can just get on with its own thing it doesn't really need us at all it's people that need support and management and help and governance and and alternative livelihood options um so yeah it's trying to support the people that live in this landscape it goes well beyond just anti-poaching i think in zambia as well obviously the virus and the impact on, on on lives and people's health is massive and has potential to be to be massive but unfortunately i think what's going to be bigger is economic impact because people here are, are already on a poverty line in, in many areas and you know this dip um, I think you know with this loss of employment through from our perspective from tourism uh, both hunting and photographic is significant and how then those basic costs the salaries of scouts salaries of the CRB uh, personnel and teachers and scholarships and, and classroom school clinic road projects they've got going on disappear um, and the subsequent kind of the knock-on effects of that 
are yet to be seen, but I think we can be pretty sure that there's obviously it's going to it's going to have an impact with those benefits being lost. Then you know the um, justification for conservation in some of these households on the breadline. That's a difficult argument to have. We're lucky here, I think, in many respects. Our key donors um, committed to the grants for this year and next year, which is very positive. We've also had donors saying that their capital base is very much reducing. Lots of um, foundations and trusts have their capital held up in uh, stocks and shares, and people have tightened their belts extremely quickly. We have the opportunity to um, show again and embed again with the communities that conservation is an economic has an economic importance and it and is actually going to be one of the few um few players in this whole this whole field that can keep jobs um and that's taken that's taken some doing as well getting that around because it's quite an alien thing to to to, to appreciate and it's very unlike some of the other um viruses that we have in in, in that regard in terms of its uh, its transmission rate this crisis will show us again how important it is that it's a global responsibility for these landscapes. Mm. So, you know, I think the fact that we don't rely upon um, the area's revenue generation for protecting this landscape, but we rely upon a global responsibility because it's global threats that are against these landscapes, I think is key. And I hope the more that that can be seen around the world and more it's taken on as a global responsibility, and not just Zambia, not just North Luangwa's responsibility to cover their costs, I think the better. And with that in mind, I think that means that there's still opportunity through this and after this to look at more areas where, okay, listen, let us sort out this wider landscape. Um, I'm going back to Claire's point about IWT, because without landscapes, there is no IWT, because those landscapes are what host the wildlife. Um, and that's for me, I think this is going to remind us all to focus on those landscapes, but focus on the ownership of the communities within those landscapes. Such a crucial message from Ed there. My second conversation was with Nikita Ayanga from Conservation Lower Zambezi, who shared with us how the negative impact on tourism has affected their project as a conservation implementing partner in the Lower Zambezi ecosystem. The Lower Zambezi National Park and Ecosystem sustains and supports around 30,000 people. And the park itself is just over 4,000 square kilometers. She's going to be talking to us about the impact that COVID-19 has had on tourism within the park and what it means for them as a conservation operator outside of the park. Anyway, here's the conversation with Nikita. Nikita, we're going to go straight into it. Can you tell us a little bit more about who Conservation Lower Zambezi is? Yeah, sure. Um, so we're based in the Lower Zambezi Valley, um, and we're facing right opposite Manipur, and one of the areas also faces, also connects to Mozambique. So we face, we're quite, there's quite a lot of cross-border because there's Mozambique, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Um, and the Lower Zambezi area itself is, uh, about the our area that we protect is about 20,000 square kilometers but yeah it's quite a big area with a big stronghold population of elephants um, and you know we have other amazing wildlife species wild dog lion leopard pangolin all of the above and uh, yeah our biggest mandate is to support the department of national parks and wildlife and um, support them in their 
mandate to protect the park and the wildlife. And we do this through, you know, Conservation Law Zambezi is now 25, this year, 26 years old. So we had quite a long time in the valley um, learning and growing. And so we've developed quite a lot of programs now. And so we, our main goal is wildlife protection and supporting the wildlife populations in the valley. But we also know that you can't do any of that without supporting the communities that also inhabit the areas where the wildlife live. In our earlier chat, we we did discuss that CLZ is not entirely dependent on tourism, as you do have donor funding to facilitate your projects too. But to what extent does tourism contribute to your operations? So let's say in 2019, about 15% of our annual um, budget was from tourism. So it's quite a quite a big chunk of it. Um, but the but the main thing is is that it supports our operations and our running costs. So you know our donors and our funders um, from big institutions and um, governments support our projects and our activities, and then tourism and membership support our unrestricted funds. So that things like salaries and running costs and admin and things that unforeseeable budgetable um, things and so it's you know it's not to say it does a lot for us given it is quite a substantial amount um with this possible year lost in tourism without tourism revenue being generated in the park how's it going to impact your operation um it's actually um you know Everything came to a standstill just as the operators were about to start opening up for the season. And this is so unforeseeable and came out of nowhere that there was no way to plan for it. And now suddenly um, there's, everyone has to shut down and they can't, um, realistically, a lot of people who were supposed to have jobs right now don't. And so that's affecting the community very, very much. And for people who were, who, you know, the lowest and basic communities, very low income communities, and by not being able to support themselves anymore and by having um, this hindrance, um, they are, they're not able to um, sustain their livelihoods anymore. And so we fear that this is going to lead to a rise in poaching. Alternative livelihoods and avoiding people looking back at the natural resource within the park. Do you guys have any ideas in how you're going to assist in mitigating the effects of the unemployment? Yeah, so right now we're actually looking to support them right now with the very basics. So helping with any food relief that we can in very vulnerable communities. Um, you know, obviously we have to think bigger, long term and sustainable. But for at the immediate moment, you know, we also have to see what the worst situation is and how we can help that. So we've, um, you know, we've got a few, a couple of emergency grants that have come in to support COVID um, situations. And so we're using, we're going to help use that to help um, with sensitization in the communities and um, helping with understanding what, what the situation is and why it's come about and helping people be um, aware and safe. So like right now, what are the primary primary essential activities that you would focus on inst- straight away? 
so right now it's continuing 100% continuing our efforts in um, law enforcement. So we're making sure that the park is protected. The other big one is the community. So supporting the community, um, like I mentioned earlier, just um, with the basic needs now. Um, and so, yeah, those are the big, our biggest things at the moment. Where can people get involved if they want to get involved? Where can they support you? We have a crowdfunding campaign that's out right now. And, you know, even because it's a difficult time for everyone. So even if people aren't financially able to support, it really helps with just spreading the word, sharing the message, sharing the link. The link to the crowdfunding page is in my show notes for the episode. Please support CLZ in any way possible, even with something as simple as a share. Anyway, shifting away from Zambia, I moved south of the Zambezi and spoke to an organization that relies on volunteer funding for their conservation efforts. The Imeri Volunteer Program is located in Wedza, Zimbabwe and is headed by Riley Travers. Riley is going to be giving us some insight into the impact that COVID-19 has had on their conservation efforts, particularly when it comes to volunteer-funded conservation majority of their program is funded by volunteers. Riley is going to share with us the challenges that they've faced and the future that he sees in volunteerism going forward post-COVID-19. Riley, welcome to the show and thanks for joining me. Good morning. Um, yeah, all good out in sunny weather. Uh, winter's definitely setting in. Um, but yeah, everyone's well, family's good and um, yeah, really looking forward to the conversation. Riley, can you just give our viewers and our listeners a bit of um, context as to where Imeri is located in Zim? So Imeri is southeast of the capital, Harare. We're about uh, an hour, 45 minutes out of Harare. And yeah, we, we sort of in a, in a farming district. We're 4,500 hectares. So we've got about 50 square kilometers of conservancy um, and, a, and a pristine little piece of paradise uh, in Mashonland East. Riley, I was looking at Imeri's um, vision, and the vision is basically to enhance the relationships between tourism, conservation programs, and community areas through sustainable environmental management and positive community projects. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for us, just to let us know how you came about the vision and how you established this long-term goal for the area and for your, for your conservancy? Matt, I'm going to go back in history. Um, Imeri's always been, a, had community involvement in it, going back to 1972, where my grandparents uh, then got involved in the community. So it's a long-standing relationship we've had, and we're just enhancing and bettering the techniques and, and uh, concepts that, that were originated in. But, but our primary focus is, number one, rhino protection. And we do this by using the community through a conservation strategy. And, and, you know, we work on a tripod system, which is exactly what you said there, community, uh, tourism, and conservation. And we believe that those three pillars is what Imeri functions under. And they're, they're critical. We, ca- we cannot operate w- without a missing, with removing one of those links out of there. Uh, the tripod will completely collapse. Give us and the, the listeners a little, little bit more of an understanding as to where the funding to manage the conservancy comes from. How do you guys generate your funds? Um, do you have donor involvement? Where is the priority in terms of funding your, pro- your programs? Matt, so our, the volunteer program it, it plays a pivotal role uh, in Imeri. And the funding through the volunteer program is what runs Imeri. It keeps the wheels turning 
uh, on this on this big cart that we, we we're pulling here. And so that is the that's the core focus of where our funding comes in. Our volunteer program has been running uh, for the last 14 years. It was established in 2007. And so, but surely it's it's built up momentum. Can you take us through the primary the primary responsibilities of the volunteers? What what do they do, and what do they come away with when they come onto your program? Matt, volunteers, I believe, are the future. Uh, to to well, not the future, but are going to play a pivotal role in conservation going forward. And and why that is is because I'll explain to you how what they do. They they get their hands dirty, they get behind the scenes, they get to understand what it takes to protect these species, what it takes to run a community conservation program, what it, you know, what the dedication of the men in the field and the, the, the work that they do to protect um, and put their lives on the line for the wildlife. And so they get exposed to all these different elements. And I feel it's that exposure that sends them back with the right message of what's happening in the conservation world and the challenges. Absolutely. And I mean, these international volunteers are obviously taking the message back with them. And your story is getting a far greater reach, not just for our Mary, but conservation in general in Africa and the efforts that everyone's going through on the ground. So Riley, now step in the COVID-19 era. When did Imeri have to close its doors to voluntourists? Matt, so we closed on the 18th of March, just, just as the flights were. So we had, we were in the middle of a, a nature enthusiast course. Uh, we had a full camp of volunteers. And obviously we, we saw what was going on in the news and we could suddenly, all of a sudden, the airlines were starting to close. And um, so on the 18th of March, we, we made the call um, and we addressed our, our volunteers. And, uh, which was, you know, you can imagine it's not easy. You've got people who've spent you know, a lot of money, a lot of time uh, saving up to do have these incredible experiences, and we sadly had to send them home. We we're lucky enough; we've got managed to get everybody out within about a five-day period. Yeah, but it's it's been massive, Matt. It's it's played a massive, it's had a massive impact on Imeri and the runnings of Imeri, and you know, we've really had to rethink, re-strategize, and work out where, where we're going to go from here to, to see this one out. We don't see any any light at the end of the tunnel as such as to when this is all going to unravel itself and come and return back to norm. In those two months, what have been your major setbacks? Where have you felt the impacts the most? And what has been your strategy around mitigating those impacts? The, the biggest impacts we've had um, that we've felt so far is obviously, you know, complete lack of, lack of income. Uh, I mean, that's been the hardest. So you, you know, the resources aren't there to carry out uh, all the commitments that we've got as a, as a conservancy. So that's, the, that's been the biggest impact. And now we're just trying to eliminate what we can to keep, the, keep this wheel turning and keep it, uh, keep it moving. So we've, we've primarily focused on, on uh, security, protecting the, the asset, and that's what we're doing now. So we've, we've kept all our, we've, our guys on full pay um, just to keep them motivated, food packs, um, and just keep the men in the field and keep, you know, protect the wildlife. You know, we run, um, you know, a, a numerous amount of community outreach programs. We've got women's uh, support groups making arts and crafts. We've got feeding programs at school where we feed over a thousand kids a day. Uh, we've got literacy programs where we teach literacy in, in um, three different schools here. 
we've got beekeeping projects that we've got to keep running. And these are all projects that require, you know, people, uh, clientele, uh, resources to, to keep them moving forward. But in light of scaling back on your livelihood programs and your support groups out in the community and focusing on your security of the conservancy, what has been the... What has been the reaction of the community? Have they been receptive? Have they acknowledged what's going on? Are they understanding? Yeah, I think I think people are understanding now. Um, you know, in the beginning, when we first when it first came out, it was still very nobody knew where we were, what was going on, why we were doing this. But certainly, as you know, there's a lot more news out there. There's a lot more information. Um, I, people are, do understand the situation. People understand they've got to get back to their families. People understand. The challenges that this this um, COVID uh, you know presents, and um, so I, I think we've got I think the people within the with the Windsor community definitely understand it, respect it, and I'm trying to you know are hoping that it's going to be sooner than later we're going to be back on track and are back to some form of normality. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm I was very surprised with how they they handled it, and um, it's been. It's been encouraging for sure. Yeah, the honest belief is that people are going to be more connected at the end of the day. We've we've abused this plan for too long. We haven't paid enough attention to the world around us and the perfect message to travel responsibly and to focus on the impact that we are making on this world. Riley, thank you very much. Is there anything more that you would like to tell us? Is there anything in particular that you'd like to get out there? I think... Yeah, this is an opportunity as as human beings to to make a difference. We, we've we've done too much damage. We've hurt the earth too much, and now's our time to to make a difference. Come back and and make this place and this world a better a better place for for us and for our future generations. And I think we've got to take heed and we've got to unite, come together, and and really make a difference to this earth. Another strong message coming from Riley there. We need to come together and stand up and take responsibility for our actions that we impart on this earth. My next guest in the series is Simon Capon from the Gonorizo Conservation Trust in Zimbabwe. So this week my guest is Simon Capon, who is the Business Development Manager for the Gonorizo Conservation Trust, or the GCT. The GCT is a newly formed partnership between the Zimbabwe Wildlife and Parks Authority and the Frankfurt Zoological Society. The Frankfurt Zoological Society has been a part of the management of Gonorizo for the last 20 years. Just to give you a little bit of context about Gonorizo, Gonorizo forms a part of the GLTP, which is the Greater Limpopo Transfrontier Park, which involves South Africa's Kruger National Park, Mozambique's Gaza National Park, and Zimbabwe's Gonorizo National Park. So we're talking about a massive area. Anyway, our conversation this week evolves around the impact that COVID-19 has had on the area, particularly down in Gonorizo and on the GCT operational front. Anyway, without too much more, here's my conversation with Simon. We're going to go straight into well, how the Gonorizo Conservation Trust has been affected by COVID-19 and what changes. Mm. Well, let's talk about the challenges first. When, when this COVID-19 all, all started out, um, I think we did all underestimate it to a certain extent. And, and you know, we're seeing now the major effects it's having globally um, on economies worldwide. I think 
for us, obviously, um, in conservation uh, and related to that tourism, tourism seems to be the industry that that's hit almost hardest from this from this COVID nineteen and all the travel restrictions around that. Um, you know, for us, tourism contributes a significant part of our budget each year and, and really allows us to do, do a lot of work in protecting the park. And, you know, since the, the lockdown measures and the restrictions and everything from, from this pandemic, we haven't, we've obviously closed down the park to tourism and we haven't had any tourists coming to the park, which, which is a big problem for us because although, um, you know, we've closed the park, the business of conservation doesn't stop. You know, we still have to protect the park. Uh, we still have to employ people. We still have the costs that go that go with that. So, so you know, we've had to we've had to adjust our operations a lot. We've had to look at halting um, a lot of infrastructure projects in the park and and focusing funds uh, more on things like staff welfare and and making sure we can continue to employ people in the park. You know, one of our focuses in Gonorazo is really employing people from the local community around around the park. So I think about 85 odd percent of our staff come from communities directly adjacent to the park. And, you know, just just through that employment, um, we can contribute back to to the local economy around the park and really, I suppose, you know, a healthy local economy in a way, uh, contributes to a healthy park. And so we, you know, we, we believe that we've got to continue as far as we can, um, helping employ people from the local community. And that means obviously shifting a lot of our funding and delaying some of the projects that we were planning for this year. You know, apart from the tourism aspect, how have your donors responded in terms of financing your, your projects? I suppose it's, it's a difficult one because, um, you know, we have we have various different donors. We have very committed donors to the park, but obviously everyone's hit by the same uh, pandemic at the moment. And so we are seeing um, some potential scalebacks of our donor funding, um, which is going to impact on us in the longer term. And so we're really going to have to think hard about how we prioritize our funding from here going forward. Um, I think so many conservation areas are in the same boat. You know, we are concerned about it, but, you know, we've got to carry on. You know, the, the real work that we're doing for conservation has to carry on. And so, Simon, when a tourist comes and stays down at Gonorizo, what are they essentially actually paying for at the end of the day? Because it's a lot more than just a bed night. You know, when, when a tourist comes to Gonorizo, they're not really paying for the bed that they're sleeping in you know what they're paying for is to see those elephants playing in the pan and to hear that hyena or that lion calling at night while you're sitting around your campfire that's really what what you're paying for um you're paying for the ecosystem services that a park like produces the bigger i suppose the bigger picture of it is that we're really paying for conservation. Um, and in Gonorizo, your money goes directly back into the park and we reinvest it in, in the protection of the park itself. So for us, that, that's a huge role that tourists play in the park is that their support is coming directly back to us in the park. You know, there's a much more deeper 
deeper meaning to what people are paying for when they come to a protected area like Conorizo. Sure, and I think it's well basically a message to the people now that local tourism has often been overlooked in the especially in the last 10, 15 years when international travel has become a lot easier. I think this pandemic has given a good light for us to turn around and place value and emphasis back on what we have on our own doorstep and to start appreciating places like Conorizo once again. I think travel will be looked at very differently coming out of this. Um, and, you know, certainly for us in a place like Conorizo, we hope to see some recovery in, in the local market um, and try and get as many Zimbabweans into a place like Conorizo to enjoy their natural heritage and really get an opportunity to appreciate what, what we have in Zimbabwe. Simon, thanks so much for joining me on this conversation. It's been great to hear your insight. Just on parting, is there any message that you want to leave with us? You know, when it's safe to do so, uh, travel, uh, come and see these conservation areas, um, celebrate them, support them, stay safe. Simon's message on supporting conservation areas is an important one. Local tourism could help many of these places survive what is already a tough year. Now, my last conversation in this series ties in the effect that putting the blame of the pandemic on a species has for the future of the conservation of that species. Bats were initially targeted as a source for COVID-19, and this led to global persecution against bats. So this week, my guest is Dr. Rachel Cooper-Bohannon, who is from Bats Without Borders up in Malawi. And this week, she's going to be talking to us about the suspected link between the bats and COVID-19 and how we as a human species need to change our behavior more than anything. I hope you enjoy it. It's an interesting one and would love to hear your feedback on this. Thank you very much, Matt, for um, inviting me on here. So um, I'm a conservation biologist with Bats Without Borders and I'm also on the IUCN Bat Specialist Group and uh, on the Committee for Bat Conservation Africa. Should we dive straight into it? Are bats the cause of COVID-19? So there's actually no evidence that bats started COVID-19. So in um, China and other parts of the world, um, in, including some parts of you know, Western Central Africa, people do eat bats. And like any other mammals, uh, bats are reservoirs of disease. Um, so there's, there's been a lot of speculation. And in China, people do eat bats. Um, and bats are actually, surprisingly, quite revered actually in China and considered good luck. Um, but the the sort of the epicenter of, of uh, the COVID-19 virus starting was actually in the Wuhan, um, we, we believe, in the Wuhan wet market, wet wildlife market. And actually, there was no bats that were, were being sold there. So they're still, we're not 100% sure. So bats do carry some coronaviruses. And there was actually in 2013, one species um, of horseshoe bat has found to have a similar um, COVID virus to, to what we're now seeing in, in COVID-19. But there's still, that was in 2010, um, and there's actually over 1,400 species of bats. Um, so, you know, there's also COVID viruses you get in, in birds and other species too. So I think there's been a lot of speculation, but there's certainly um, no evidence. The bushmeat trade in bats, in Africa generally, is there, is there not a localized stigma against the consumption of bats? There, there is in, in some communities, but we found um, in certain areas, so in where 
West Africa, um, it's, it's quite prevalent, and in uh, Central Africa. We've recently found out that actually in the northern part of, of Zambia and in some areas in the north of, of Malawi here, where we're finding there's actually in Malawi, we have a syndicate of nine hunters um, that another bat conservation organization have, have been collaborating to try and, and find out um, you know, how prevalent it is. And they actually found that one hunter actually killed uh, 5,000 bats in one day, oh, uh, which wow. is just not sustainable. Pre-COVID-19, the status of bats generally was on the decline. And we spoke briefly about the persecution against them um, as largely being a misunderstood species. And like you said, you cannot love something that you don't understand. What measures are there internationally in place that protect bat species, particularly in Africa? I remember reading the Conservation of Migratory Species, I think it is. Can you take us through that a little bit? Yeah, that's right. So um, generally, so in um, across Africa, we don't really have as much kind of protection of, of species as we like. And most countries don't AUCN red lists, apart from South Africa, um, Eswatini and Lesotho, uh, but generally bats are actually protected um, because there's actually no uh, chemical or poisoning license to kill bats, so nobody should legal, is legally allowed to to use that for bats. But the Convention of um, on the Conservation of Migratory uh, Species of Wild Animals, called CMS, so most countries in Africa are signatories. So Malawi is actually one of the newest signatories. And on that, there's a certain species. So we actually only have two Southern African species that are included on that out of the you know 120. But we're actually been finding in certain countries that actually, so um, the straw colored fruit bats are the one you mentioned. Sanka National Park is the biggest fruit bat roost in the world. And it's something we should be really proud of having you know on our doorstep here in Southern Africa. Yeah. Um, but it's also the, the biggest terrestrial mammal migration on earth. Um, so, and that that species is actually protected through CMS, and um, and it's also a species that they roost in very 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 high numbers um, wherever they're found, and so they're very visual to people and, and quite easy then to be targeted for persecution. And mm. we're finding reports that that this is a species that is actually being killed across Africa. Just leading back to the link with um, well, basically the mis the misrepresentation between the link of COVID-19 and the bats, or the possible misrepresentation link. What are the potential outcomes that you worry about as an organization with people identifying bats as being the source of COVID-19? Yeah, so I think um, when the initial reports came out, I mean, I think, you know, to be fair, something as big as the, this pandemic, people naturally want to understand where it's come from. And um and I think there was a, you know, a lot of media kind of came out very quickly and, um, you know, kind of reported falsely that bats had started the, the pandemic. And as a, as a group already being, you know, quite persecuted and unfairly represented in the media generally, um, you know, this is kind of just fueling that fire. So where people might have been a bit nervous, but, you know, kind of mildly tolerant of bats, now we're finding actually there's, there's kind of rampant persecutions across Africa. Rachel, such a fascinating and great conversation to be a part of and to have heard. Is there anything more that you would like to leave with us on parting? Um, I think I'd just like to kind of um, maybe leave with, you know, the to highlight that, you know, it's human behavior that has, keeps causing these 
kind of pandemics and you know it's human behavior and our impact on the natural world that we must you know address and so i think you know a lot of conservation organizations now are coming together to 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 put that word in, out and if you know if we protect the natural world and our biodiversity and we respect it then we won't be having these issues so hopefully we can actually learn from this in the future but um, yeah, to all your listeners, I'd just like to, to do a plea to people to please, um, you know, learn more about bats and actually try and help promote a positive image of bats because they really are, you know, scapegoats and, uh, and being really unfairly misrepresented. And that's it for this series. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation and for being a part of this community. I look forward to sharing the future of this channel with you as the channel grows. But for now, take care and I look forward to catching up with you next week.